and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 14, the Turkish Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton won a record-equaling seventh world championship with a dominant victory at the returning Turkish Grand Prix, but his 30-second margin doesn't tell the full story. Hamilton was almost half a minute off the lead, a third of the way into the race in a Mercedes car that had been off the pace on the greasy Istanbul track all weekend. But patience, experience and, of course, ability turned that deficit into a commanding victory to deliver Hamilton an iconic win for his seventh title. To dissect exactly how he did it, I'm joined by freelance motorsport writer and editor and host, the better host, of the Australian Grand Prix podcast in the fast lane, Matt Clayton. Matt, how are you doing? What an introduction. Uh, from, from there, I think we might have hit a high watermark in the first 10 seconds of this show, Michael, but uh, yep. excellent, excellent news. Great to join you. It's just good to start on a high and we'll, we'll go downhill <laughs> from there, I think. The Turkish Grand Prix, the grand return of the Turkish Grand Prix, first time in just about a decade we've raced here. A lot's obviously changed in Formula 1 since 2011, not least the cars, but most importantly, the surface. How exciting that we get to talk about things like bitumen and asphalt. Uh, but that really was was the key difference if you wanted to pick one between 2011 and this year never mind the key strategic point of this race but that was the key difference wasn't it that this surface prepared only 10 days in advance was not offering much in the way of driving group no not at all and i think a factor that wasn't really discussed much over the weekend normally we used to be here in may it was mm. one of the early rounds of the season so that circuit was a, a little bit more of a chance to actually get some sunlight but even when it wasn't draining or draining or draining or whatever you want to call it, it wasn't draining that's for sure but even when it wasn't throwing water down for the whole weekend there was just no temperature in this surface at all it had been resurfaced so recently that all of the oil just hadn't baked in there was no support race category so the whole weekend, the circuit never really evolved, never got a decent blast of sun across the weekend. You add these cars are so different to what we had here nine years ago, and you're adding, you know, you're six months later in the year as uh, that part of the world starts to head into the colder time of the season. So it was the the perfect storm for what ended up being one of the least predictable and most chaotic races we've seen for a long, long while. Because if the participants have got no idea what's going on, then I'm not sure how we're supposed to. <laughs> I did like, uh, I think it was Charles Leclerc afterwards who said, "Oh no, it might have been George Russell actually." He said, "I guess if you were watching it on the couch, you would have liked it, but it was terrible." I think he doesn't swear, George, but he would have sworn, I think, had he been in a, I don't know, had he been anyone else, to be honest. He would have said bother or something. Yeah, something more appropriate for Sky Sports F1 to broadcast, <laughs> Int- I think. Intent. If you wanted an idea of that greasiness, because it was talked about a lot on the weekend and you don't necessarily see it on the TV. You can see that the surface is shiny and then obviously it rained, so you couldn't see much other than the water. But if you saw during the race how dirty the cars looked, even after half distance or even earlier in some cases, particularly the, the brighter cars, I suppose. That wasn't mud from drivers going off the track because indeed this race was kept pretty clean, all things considered, for these conditions. That was all just oil off the road, the mud, the dirty water, to give you a sense of what it must have been like to drive in those conditions. It was unbelievable. The McLarens and the Renaults particularly looked like they needed a, a stint through the local car wash <laughs> afterwards. They were just covered in grime. It was like 
like you've just done like a, a big cross-country drive and you've got bugs all over the windshield and just all sorts of dust and grit and dirt. We just don't see Formula One cars looking like this because it's all so pristine and it's... And even the other thing that you mentioned about the track surface, it was interesting when people did run wide, you found that slippery green paint had more adhesion than the actual racetrack, yeah. which is not something that we say particularly often. So it was a bizarre set of circumstances. But yeah, the uh, whoever had the, uh, the, the the car wash contract for uh, Turkey's probably done quite well over the course of the weekend. <laughs> Absolutely cashed in, I think. <laughs> it's not the uh, first time we've been in exactly these conditions. If you want a real parallel, I suppose it was... Uh, a career in 2010 wasn't it where we had a similar situation where that track was finished about five minutes before Formula One rocked up but more recently I suppose we had the Portuguese Grand Prix that track was finished much earlier than this one was relative to the race I think they even had some competitive running before F1 and had support categories but I thought it was interesting that in Portugal for example there was very little track evolution because the track was still so new in this situation, and Rain nullified this a bit, but there was very little running undertaken on Friday practice. It seemed to be this assumption that, that someone else would essentially clean up the track, especially if you were Mercedes. That seemed to be the way they were approaching it, that let the other cars tidy the track up a bit and then we'll get some representative running. But the fact that, that evolution was always unlikely on a track this greasy, I couldn't help but feel that Mercedes probably cost them a little bit to have done so little running in the lead up to this race, assuming for some reason the track would get better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the lack of historical precedence here, there, there's an assumption that somebody would go and do something on a track we've not been to for nine years. If we had been here, you know, say three years previously, and we'd had a similar situation, then it would have been, well, the times are going to be horrible. We're going to have to sacrifice some tyres here, but we need to go and clean this circuit up. Even if we have to do it ourselves, sacrifice what we might learn out of Friday in an attempt to actually be able to get the... Uh, get the power down on these cars on the Saturday and Sunday. But it was incredible that the complete absence of track evolution and every corner in every session looked like it was a step into the unknown. And, you know, you mentioned the the Portugal thing. I think this is actually really interesting parallel here because you've got no air track, no air temp and no track temp at this point. And who was the driver that won the Portugal race by about half a minute, just as he did in Turkey? And you look forward to where Formula One's going in a couple of years' time where we're taking downforce off these cars. That might just exacerbate Lewis Hamilton's advantage, <laughs> yeah. assuming he sticks around for that long. So uh, you've got to be careful what you wish for, don't you? Yeah, this race very much came to Lewis, as we'll explain in a second, because he seemed very lost after Friday practice and after... After qualifying, it has to be said, the Mercedes car didn't really seem to enjoy these conditions. He said he actually made no setup changes on Friday at all. Again, perhaps a function of the fact he didn't do that much running in the first place. Made some changes Friday, didn't help for qualifying. But qualifying was a, a different beast again altogether because it rained a lot, which was the worst nightmare for a lot of drivers, as they said, because of the greasiness after Friday. And it felt to me a little bit, Matt, that after the greasiness of Friday, when maybe people were starting to understand how it worked, even if it was a little bit unpredictable, the rain really pushed this into lottery territory because so few drivers and teams seem to understand how to warm up these tyres in the grease, in the rain and in the cold temperatures. Well, even FP3 wasn't particularly useful a couple of hours before qualifying. The conditions changed that much between FP3 and qualifying that even the people that did a limited number of laps in FP3, those laps were basically out the window once we got to Q1. And you knew what this qualifying session was going to be like. It was going to be red flags. It was going to be much longer than the one hour. There were going to be multiple stoppages. And sure enough, I mean, there were guys that were struggling to make it into Term 1 in the early, early stages of Q3 and Q1 where no one's actually pushing. Yeah. And, you know, so you knew that it was going to be utterly chaotic combined with the lack of track, track evolution and the, the drainage there. I mean, it goes from being 
you'll live on your wits and you know maybe rely on some sort of historical precedent to as you said just complete lottery you had guys up the top that probably shouldn't have been you had hamilton in this interesting situation where you know he clearly had the most to lose he could have binned it and started down the back and in a normal dry race that wouldn't have been a problem because you just expect the mercedes to to storm through the field but this wasn't going to be that weekend so he was sort of neither here nor there and where he was going it it was all set up for someone to actually finally unseat Mercedes from this dominance they've had over the front row this season. But uh, I'm not quite sure we would have picked the uh, the way this grid shook out after that fairly crazy qualifying two hours. Came down to Racing Point and Red Bull Racing. I think I've been a little bit critical over this season of Racing Point for making strategic mistakes. And we'll certainly argue later on that perhaps they made one in the race. But for qualifying, certainly in Sergio Perez's case, they were the first to be brave enough to try the intermediate tyres, immediately showed everyone the track at the start of Q3 was good enough for that tyre. He didn't take pole in the end. He spun on his last lap. He was balked by another driver as well. So he had a little bit of an excuse there. It was Stroll who got it. But Max Verstappen, I think this is the first time in a long time I've seen him really quite disappointed because he recognised that strategically in qualifying three, he was dropped into traffic, made the switch to intermediate ties late. His chance for pole was thrown away. His chance for the first pole this season was thrown away through just not really... I guess, being proactive enough in tyre strategy in, in Q3. Which is not something you normally say about both Verstappen and Red Bull, is it, to mm. be honest? And you could just see the body language. He dominated what running there had been through FP1, FP2, FP3. As soon as you saw the conditions on Saturday, my mind immediately went to Brazil 2016. And you remember yeah. what an absolutely brilliant performance that was and taking lines that nobody else was taking and just really living on his wits. The, when I saw those conditions, I thought, not only will he be on pole here, he'll be on pole by some absolutely ridiculous amount, like 2.5 seconds or something, and do it going away because he's just got this fantastic mastery of, of inventing things in situations like this. So you could just see, I mean, look, you know, it's a long race, you're still on the front row, but he was so disappointed that he wasn't able to con- convert that dominance that I think pretty much everyone in the paddock expected him to have on Saturday. The fact that he was still in the front row was no solace to him, whatever. And uh, look, considering how things shook out for Max, which we'll get to a little bit later on, uh, P2 was about as good as the weekend got, really. Yeah, in fact, almost exactly. Straight away from the launch, things are looking pretty dicey from him. I think the best way to go through a race like this where it was so changeable throughout, the conditions were changing, the leaders were changing, the momentum was changing, is just really to, to go through this chronologically and... In the first third of this race, all eyes, of course, were on Lewis Hamilton, periodically at least. I mean, Lance Stroll was doing a good job in the lead, but let's start with Hamilton. He had the title on the line, obviously. On the line, maybe overstating it a little bit. You know, he's going to win it eventually, but could have won it here and did win it here, of course. But he was almost half a minute off the pace, a third of the way into this race, just to really underline how uncomfortable that Mercedes car was. I feel like several times this season, you know, they have a bit of a dodgy practice. They obviously get pole, but maybe don't look as convincing as you expect. And we think, well, maybe the race is on. For once, this seemed to be actually the case for him. And then things really started to change once he moved to that intermediate tyre. What do you think was activated here. I think the parallel with Portugal is really interesting in that it was sort of similar where a switch seemed to flick for him. But what can we glean from the conditions changing from about third distance about what turned that deficit into a half-minute advantage? It's interesting. You only need to compare the driver in the sister Mercedes. Um, Valtteri Bottas had miserable with a capital M race (laughs) here in Turkey. But you look at once Hamilton got onto the Inters, and I think there's... It's one of those more, it's a high risk, high reward 
situation for him, which I think brings out the best in him. And I think one of the underrated parts of the way he drives these days, he's involved into this fantastic tyre manager. And that's not something that you would have said about him earlier in his career, where it was just basically living off just pure speed and combative ability and wheel-to-wheel stuff. But he's become this fantastic manager of tyres. And you do wonder, you know, inadvertently at least, I mean, he was paired at McLaren with probably the best guy in these half wet, half dry or very sketchy conditions in Jensen Button. I wonder if there's some sort of something of, of Jensen that's in Lewis's driving these days that perhaps he doesn't get necessarily the credit for. But once there was more room for him to improvise, he just completely came alive. And I was a little like you in that We've seen Mercedes have a ropey session here and there, and you you get so used to thinking, oh, is this the week that they look a bit vulnerable? And then they go and pulverise everybody in the race. But when he was half a minute off the lead, you're thinking, okay, this might actually be a proper issue here. And it wasn't until really late in the race that you realised what he had done on the inters. And so his ability to deal with fading tyres, you only had to look at the tyres yeah. on the car by the end of it. He did, fi- he did 50 laps on a set of inters to the point where they were basically completely worn down. And we'll get to the what happened at the end of the race with the pit stop that he didn't take a little bit later, I'm sure. But um, his ability to read the conditions while being on the less than ideal tyre is one of the many things that sets him apart, but it's probably the biggest differentiator in what separates him from the rest of the field. I think in this race as well, and you're absolutely right, and I think in the, in that respect, this was a really typical or classic Hamilton drive, a really good way for him to claim this title. Not that there should be any doubts about his abilities, but a really iconic way, I suppose, for a Hamilton title to be won. But I think there was so much at play here as well that was patience. And I think this is also a little bit underrated part of Hamilton's game because we hear on the radio all the time, sometimes he sounds a bit worked up and having some tension with his engineer, which only really exists on the radio. Uh the patience here to let those tyres come to him, let the conditions come to him. And we can contrast this here, I think, with Lance Stroll, for example. I know it's a little bit unfair because there is an experience gap and certainly a machinery gap here. But whereas Stroll had built a lead early in the race, then it started to close back in. And then, of course, he struggled further on. We'll talk about that second pit stop in a second. But was really struggling to clean up the graining on these tyres. Because while these were intermediate tyres and they were intermediate conditions, it was still so cold that graining was a problem. Hamilton just pushed through that to the point where he knew the tyres were going to come back to him. Then all of a sudden, found that extra performance. The tyres, ironically, towards the end of the race, because they were so worn down, worked as slicks in what (laughs) were arguably slick conditions. So that even worked to his advantage. But that patience and I think experience gap there as well shouldn't be understated. Especially, I mean... I think it speaks a lot to the fact that he beat a lot of experienced drivers with this strategy as well. Yeah, there's a composure element to Hamilton's driving now. And sometimes I wonder, I'm not saying that the conversations he has with the pit wall are for show, but I'm wondering if that's a way for him to perhaps verbally release some of the tension that he's feeling that enables him to sort of free his mind up to play the long game a little bit more, which I think is another part of the great evolution of him as a champion. And you could see, you know, conversely to this, Lance Stroll was fantastic in the first half of this race, let's be honest. But as soon as things started to get a little bit sideways and he was wondering, you know, should we be on you know, uh, slicks at this point? There's a dry line. And he started to get a little agitated. When you don't have the data bank to draw upon, Hamilton can look at this and say, oh, yeah, I've done this before in you know, XYZ races. Stroll's in very unfamiliar territory. He's feeling the, the noose tighten a little bit here. And he's thinking, I need to do something else because if we keep doing things the way we're doing them, I'm not going to win this. This race. And as much as these guys are trying to take it, particularly in a race like this, corner by corner, lap by lap, you could see that the long game was starting to appear in his consciousness. And he was jumping at shadows a little bit, I thought. And 
his composure was so good when he was out front when things were on his terms. But then when the rest of the pack started to come back at him, you could sense a... I don't know if panic's quite the right word, but I think you know what I mean. There was a lack of clarity in his decision-making at this point, where Hamilton is going to say, this is a long race. We're doing two-minute laps here, guys. We've got 58 laps to go around here. I can just bide my time and bide my time because I know that I can clean these tyres up. Once I do that, then it's a different race. But Stroll perhaps didn't have quite the patience and composure and, as you say, the experience to, to really go down that path. Some of those shadows he was probably jumping out in the first half of the race where Hamilton still wasn't appearing on the radar, but Red Bull Racing certainly were because we knew, as you said earlier, they showed the pace uh, in practice and right up until the very end of qualifying. I think Stroll probably recognised that uh, had qualifying gone for a little bit longer, Pole probably would have be, uh, been relieved from him. Max Verstappen was on a charge. And I wonder here, though, he was trying to pass Sergio Perez. He was in third place. Uh, passing Perez would have allowed him to close that gap to Stroll because he was the faster car at that point in the race early on on intermediate tyres. But he spun. He spun his car, trying to get too close to Perez, spun it over some curbs, over some of the painted part of the circuit. He's, he's developed into quite a mature driver of Verstappen, so I don't want to play on this part too much because he, he's become very complete. But I couldn't help but think that this was a little bit of frustration leaking past from qualifying. And even his really poor start uh, just didn't have the revs really in the car. It was almost too cautious, I thought, trying to make up for that. And that really sort of undermined his race from there. Even before the Perez incident, remember, he got stuck behind Sebastian Vettel mm. in those early laps. Seb made a fantastic start. And wasn't able to get past. You could see the frustration building. And there was the conversation with the pit wall where he probably stayed out on full wets a lap or two too long before pitting for the Inters. So that put him on his back foot. He came right up on the back of Perez as quickly as possible. But seven laps later, he's spun and flat spotted those. So he's back in the pits on lap 18. So even before the Perez spin, I think that the die had been cast a little bit where he's thinking, this Ferrari's been nowhere all year. Why is this thing ahead of me? And he knew that he was so compromised in terms of the pace that he wanted to run. And I think that the beginning of the end was, well, as you said, he bogged the start completely from the dirty side of the grid or the, I think both sides of the grid were dirty, let's be honest, the the more dirty side of the grid. But then there was a frustration in that, you know, I thought Sebastian Vettel in that first yeah, eight to ten laps, when you consider what he's driving and the absolutely horrific form that he has been in, was really, really impressive to keep a clearly faster car with a clearly more confident driver behind him. And I think, you know, Verstappen, that was where things started to go awry there long before he caught Perez. But look, you look at the chronology of his race. I mean, even after the Perez incident, there were about two or three situations where you're thinking, okay, he's going to get back into where he should be. And it just every time he was in a position where you thought he deserved to be in terms of car pace, and his confidence, something else, and another uh, another another curveball would come in and ruin where we thought we would end up. Yeah, I mean, another spin later on as well, uh, a little bit less forced, I would argue, uh, and a spin as well for Alex Albon, who inherited the. I guess, mantle of trying to lead that victory charge for Red Bull Racing. Uh, at that point, his tyres were a little bit more worn as well. And I think it showed up probably the Red Bull package, good though it was in these conditions, that it has always suffered this season from that kind of nervous rear end. And in conditions like this, in uh, intermediates that were becoming slicks on the Red Bull Racing car, probably too early for slick conditions, that pretty much ended that team's race. Oh, look, it's that car all year has been on a knife edge. And as much as, you know, we've... 
we've all talked a lot about Alex Albon this season. I think we're probably underestimating a little bit what Max Verstappen's done in that car because it does not look like an easy car to drive at all. And it is really, really on a knife edge. I think it's testament to how brilliant Verstappen's been this year when you consider he's the only driver that has given the Mercedes the Mercedes pair any sort of a fright in normal conditions. I think Albon maybe is driving to the limit of the car where Max is perhaps exceeding that. But uh, you had to wonder with Alex Albon last night, we look at where his career is and the pressure that's on him at the moment. He's cruising up towards these uh, racing points. It's a superior car. You're thinking, is this it? You know, you start to think to yourself, if he has a, a massive result, it looked at one point like he might win the race. Yeah. And is is that, I mean, that's a career changing drive in that there is absolutely no chance Red Bull are going to move him on if he somehow wins a race that is utterly chaotic like this one was. But uh, here we are with three races to go and we're having the same conversation that we've had after the previous 14. But, uh, you know, say la vie. Yeah, it shows that there is at least some consistency as well. <laughs> Yeah. strange COVID season, yeah. doesn't it? This middle part of the race was all set up, strangely enough, by Ferrari, who even at this point, though Vettel was running quite high up, you didn't expect to play such a defining part in the Grand Prix. Actually came, the impetus, impetus did from Charles Leclerc, much further down the grid, was 14th after the first lap, and perhaps seized a little bit by a nothing-to-lose mentality. At both pit stop windows was the first driver to switch to, to new intermediates. At the first pit stop window in particular... Everyone pretty much followed him Followed him in because he was extremely quick. Uh, Ferrari's often criticised for some poor strategy calls. This was one of the races that I feel like we really have to pay them credit, not just because they got it right, but because in such conditions, they really backed their drivers to make the right calls, executed really well, and gained massive... They were bold, but I'm wondering how much of that comes from a position of... You look at the fight for third in the constructors between Racing Point, Renault and McLaren, you thought to yourself, well, you know, say a team like Renault who were struggling a little, maybe they should have, you know, put Esteban Ocon out there on a set of slicks or something when it became pretty clear that we we're almost in that changeover window. Ferrari are in the fight to be the best Italian-based Formula One team this year, which is actually not that good. So when you're, you can't think of Ferrari in historical terms like this was a ballsy and brave thing for Ferrari to do. What have Ferrari got to lose at this point? They've been completely anonymous for the entire season. Leclerc has been quite frankly, I think probably the third best driver this year with what he's been able to extract out of that car. And we know the season that Sebastian Vettel has had. It's one thing to be in a position for Ferrari where they can be bold. And, you know, they've had a, another couple of pit stop dramas, which we've seen all season, but full credit to them for actually pulling the trigger on that. And as you say, I think Charles Leclerc, as much as you'll look at the final standings and say, well, you know, he had a limited impact on this race, I thought the decision-making with him was really a catalyst for some of the big picture moments in this Grand Prix. Absolutely. And it also showed, I thought, you know, Ferrari looked quite good in practice. Leclerc very disappointed to have been six seconds off the pace in Q2 and eliminated there. They were a bit mystified by that. Conditions were much heavier at that point in qualifying. But that work on Inters seemed to come a little bit to the fore here and they really performed quite well on them. But that second stop in particular was race-defining. Not necessarily for him. I mean, it did bring him up into podium contention, but race-defining because one driver who took the bait, who ultimately probably shouldn't have, was Lance Stroll with the lead of the race. You mentioned a little bit earlier on when you could see that the field was closing up, having had a fairly commanding advantage early in the race, started to get a bit jumpy. And I think what was really interesting, and this may... I mean, it'll be interesting to see how he digests this, I suppose, but he was told he was going to pit... Sounded a bit jumpy about that. They delayed the pit stop, but ultimately went with the team's advice. His tyres had been graining, but on new tyres, substantially 
worse grading. You got to wonder if he's thinking afterwards, should he have gone with his gut a little bit here and just held on to those tyres because it could have been a very different result for him had he done it. Well, you only have to look about at what happened on the other side of the garage. We know how good Sergio Perez is at managing tyres. He could probably do about three races on a set of tyres the way he normally goes. But you wonder if there's a sense of inherent pressure there for Stroll knowing that your teammate in the sister car is probably better at tyre management than you And you're thinking, I need some sort of an advantage here because he's still, the at this point of the race, the driver most likely to beat me. And there's all of the, you know, Perez leaving the team, Stroll staying in the team, all of that. You wonder if at least subconsciously how much of that is playing in his mind. In the end, he's... He, you know, he didn't back his, his gut or he wasn't able to convince the team to, to follow through on what he initially wanted to do. And in the end, they kind of sat in a bit of a halfway house. They didn't go early enough for the tyre stop. They didn't stay out long enough to really get the benefit to to cover Perez. And then, you know, he's two-thirds of the way through the race and he's basically dominated the race. He finished 72 seconds behind Lewis Hamilton. It's unbelievable that you could lose that much time in 22 laps. But a lot of that was uh, between the ears as opposed to uh, the hands gripping the steering wheel, I think, in those last 20 laps. A good point as well, I think it's fair to say. While it was graining on those new tyres, I think you could tell once he got... There was one moment as well where he was swamped by three cars, both Ferraris and Alex Elbon, I think it was, passed in that last twisty section of the track. And you almost got a sense that that was sort of psychologically quite damaging to him in this race. Uh, For taking that bait, that really cost him the race. Perez didn't, I guess a combination of knowing that he's very good at stretching those stints. I'm glad Racing Point lent on that because there have been races where they haven't in this season. That's cost Perez and Hamilton as well. And if we want to go back to the experience marker, he wasn't going to stop at that second pit stop window, but once he'd built up a pit stop worth of time to Perez in second, just to underline how strong he was in this race, he was offered what Mercedes called a safety stop. Mm -hmm. And... He's, he recalled immediately after the, race, the 2007 Chinese Grand Prix when he lost that year's championship effectively under steering in the pit lane. It's that experience again playing it there. He knew that there was a risk to stopping, knew he could make the tyres last, and that well, was Even decisive. Valtteri Bottas had pitted not too long before that, and the pit lane entrance was so treacherous. And you can you know, you can mm. throw... I mean, George Russell hit the, uh, hit the, hit the did a David Coulthard and hit the wall on the way on the reconnaissance <laughs> laps to the grid. And, you know, you had Max Verstappen was investigated for a penalty for, you know, drifting out on the really wet pit lane exit. It's one of those things... Yeah, okay, look, it's nice to have a nice uh, fresh set of boots on and you've got the time to do it, but you're introducing elements that are out of your control necessarily. You could you know, slide on a wet pit lane apron or there could be someone else out in the lane that delays you or something along those lines. But as you were saying, it's interesting that you know he filed back through the, the, the Rolodex of many, many years of races and thought, hmm, I ended up in the world's smallest gravel trap in Shanghai 13 years ago. <laughs> and it basically cost him a world championship. You know, We're talking about him winning a record-equaling seventh world championship. He probably should have won the world championship in his rookie year, but for that mistake in 2007. But the clarity of thought in a situation like that, of course he would have wanted new tyres for those last couple of laps and you've got the margin to do it. But why take a risk that you don't need to. And it was interesting when there was some discussion that, look, there could be some rain in the last couple of laps. It's going to come in at turn eight. And he was like, leave leave it with me. I'll manage this. And that's confidence born out of being in similar situations before and, you know, fluffing your lines from time to time. But I'm not sure every driver in that situation would have been able to process that. And they would have thought, well, yeah, look, I do need to make the uh, inverted commas safety stop. And uh, that just opens a can of worms on a day where things were going wrong for people all over the place. Why add a random element when you've got this race completely on your terms? 
Yeah, for a Grand Prix weekend that started seemingly completely out of grasp for Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, by the time he had everything absolutely in his grasp towards the end of the race, there was no chance he was going to introduce any element outside of his control because the end of that race absolutely dictated by Hamilton being in control meant that Perez had no chance but to finish second uh, behind Hamilton of course winning this race and the title podium was going to be a Ferrari in third looked like it was going to be Charles Leclerc who was by the the time we got to the end of the race the quicker of the two but Vettel capitalized on him making a mistake trying to pass Perez for second Leclerc if you can find the radio go and have a look for it Oh, he was angry to have made that mistake. There was a lot of swearing involved. Uh, some in Italian as well, if you're into that kind of stuff. <laughs> Let's listen. Uh, you can go and have a look at, at that for yourself, though. I thought what was interesting here, though, and this is, of course, now in the retrospect territory as we wrap this up, that Vettel said the team could have won. Ferrari could have won this race had they gambled on slicks at the second stop. And this was a question that was popping up from time to time, wasn't it? Because the dry line was very much there. No one risked it. Although some of the intermediates did look like slicks by the end of the race. That's mm-hmm. by the by. Are you surprised no one risked it, though? If not in the top 10, because we knew that there was a risk of rain towards the end of the race, but somewhere lower down the order, just to see if there were some big gains to be made. I think two things here. I think where Renault were, particularly as we talked before about their position in the Constructors' Championship, you had Ricardo 10th and Ocon 11th. Why don't you just throw Ocon on a set of slicks and see what happens? There's nothing ventured, nothing gained there. But as much as we praised Ferrari before by Leclerc being the catalyst for a lot of the big strategic moves in this race, given that Ferrari's basically been nowhere all season... I am a little bit surprised that maybe Sebastian Vettel wasn't like, no, no, I want to come in and put slicks on here because, you know, quite frankly, with the way, uh, you know, the way that pack bunched up, worst case scenario, he's second. Mm-hmm. And, but he would have just, he'd been taking, he would have been taking 10 seconds a lap out of Hamilton in those last couple of laps. And it's one of those things you might finish sixth anyway, but for someone like Sebastian Vettel, whether you finish, you know, it's nice to be back on the podium. Look, it's been over a year for him, but, I don't think one podium is going to change his life, nor is a sixth place, nor is a ninth place. And it's one of those things you may as well swing for the fences because, well, you look at his time at Ferrari's wrapping up. When's the next realistic time he might win a Formula One Grand Prix? If, if ever, we don't know this, do we? So I'm a little surprised that maybe Ferrari, given the position they've been in all year, didn't get super bold. But uh, we can't be too critical given that, uh, as we said before, I think Charles Leclerc had a much bigger on this imprint than the standings in the, the final uh, reckoning will actually have us have us believe. And there was one final point to make here about the difficulty of overtaking maybe playing into the idea of slicks for those already into the points but this is a track that's normally quite good for overtaking it's quite a good racetrack overall one of Tilka's better designed circuits I think but that greasiness we started talking about at the start of the show combined with the fact that offline was still very wet meant that overtaking was a little bit rarer than perhaps we could have expected because it was much riskier to go offline. And we really saw this with McLaren, I think, in particular. They scored decent points in the end, uh, particularly with Renault not scoring so many points, as you mentioned. But Norris was very quick in this race, as was Sainz. Sainz finished fifth. Norris a couple of places behind him, recovering places late. But he got stuck behind Kevin Magnussen's Haas, a much slower car. At a circuit like this, you would expect to be fairly easy to pass. But... It was really such fine, fine margins was in this race to, to try and get past another car. It was just so treacherous. I mean, there was there were a couple of places on the lap where you might actually trust to send it down the inside at the end of the, the back straight there. But even with Norris's pace at the end of the race, I mean, he set the fastest lap on the last lap of the race. And McLaren had some really good pace. I think Science was nibbling right on the back of the uh, the podium fight at the end after the chaos on the last lap. But uh, 
a pretty decent save by McLaren, all things considered. But yeah, look, as you mentioned, I mean, where were you going to trust to make an overtake? Not only for yourself, but uh, had we had a dry race weekend on a normal uh, surface in inverted commas, I think this generation of cars, I, I would have been fascinated to have seen the amount of passing. I suspect there would have been quite a bit particularly at the end of the back straight. But, um, you know, if F1 ever goes back to Turkey, let's just hope that uh, the circuit's a bit more bedded in and it stops raining. Yeah, no more resurfacing for now. I think the surface is fine as it is, and let's let it mature a little bit. And you never know, might rock up next year. Someone's got to fill that uh, all-time great Formula 1 Grand Prix TBC. On the calendar. Well, look, then the next time the next time we have a pandemic, I think we should just put Turkey in in pen. So yeah. we'll also go down that path, perhaps. <laughs> look, it was an interesting race. Uh, one of the more memorable races, I think, of the season. You have to say, we've got three rounds left. You never know what's going to happen. But this was certainly one that'll stand out, if not for the Grand Prix racing, then certainly for Lewis Hamilton winning a record equaling seventh world championship. And it was a pleasure to talk about it with you, Matt. Thanks for having me. That was freelance motorsport journalist Matt Clayton. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your social media channels. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you next week for a preview of the Bahrain and Abu Dhabi Grand Prix.